I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Nonfiction podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your social media feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Bibi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Brotherless Night. So, Sugi, how many vacations did you take this summer? Like, if I put an over, what we put the over and under on Sugi's vacations at like a dozen? I think it kind of depends on how we characterize a vacation, mysteriously also the topic of this episode. So you're not going to say. <laughs> I feel like it was at least four. I mean, I feel like I'm always trying to multitask when I travel. So often things are work and also vacation. But yes, at least four. You're like right down there with the majority of Americans right now because and the world because people are traveling like crazy this year. Um, now, especially now that COVID's sort of over, there's this, been this incredible pent up demand for vacations. Airlines are full, airports are full, people are traveling everywhere. Yeah, and the dollar is strong. So from an American perspective, it's less expensive to travel in places like Europe than it has been in recent memory. And I think that we set some sorts of like travel records um, Americans flying yeah, to Europe. It's our YOLO vacation year. And so as everyone returns from their summer vacation, we're going to talk about the state of the American vacation in 2023, both IRL and in literature. What are the trends? How has the concept of a vacation changed since COVID? Uh, and how has it been affected by politics and climate change? And we're lucky to have my colleague Julie Schumacher here to talk with us about this. Julie grew up in Wilmington, Delaware, and graduated from Oberlin and Cornell. Her work has appeared in Best American Short Stories, The Atlantic, The New York Times, MS, The Chronicle for Higher Education, Prize Stories, The O. Henry Awards, and other venues. Her first novel, The Body is Water, was an ALA Notable Book of the Year and a finalist for the Penn Hemingway Award. 
Her other books include the national bestseller, Dear Committee Members, which won the Thurber Prize for American Humor, The Shakespeare Requirement, its sequel, Doodling for Academics, a satirical coloring book, and five novels for younger readers. Julie lives in St. Paul and is a Regents professor at the University of Minnesota, where she teaches creative writing. She's here to talk with us about the third book in her Dear Committee trilogy, The English Experience, which features fictional professor Jason Fitger returning and taking his students abroad. Julie, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you here. Uh, your novel is actually about a study abroad trip that a professor leads, but it's a trip that his provost pitches to him as a kind of vacation. I've My wife leads study abroad trips, and I go along, and they are very fun vacations, um, in our case. Uh, we're going to talk all about that novel and what, you know, when is a vacation, not a vacation. But at first I thought we'd all share the last vacation that we took, since it's the end of the summer vacation time, and where we went, starting with you, Julie. Well, I would always want to distinguish between a trip, a family trip, and a vacation. And most of what I have uh, enjoyed this summer are family trips rather than vacations. Right now, I am uh, in New York visiting my daughter. We went to a wedding last night, and then I got up at four in the morning because a baby was crying. So that's a family trip. Very enjoyable in its own way, but not necessarily relaxing. Sleep is not a priority on this sort of uh, endeavor. So does that mean that every, if you're raising, I've I've just, my oldest son is about to go to college like next weekend. Does that mean that everything I've been doing for the last 15 years has not been a vacation because it's always with the kids? (laughs) I, you know, no, I mean, there are vacation moments even in, um, you know, a family trip. I did a family trip to New Jersey with all my siblings earlier in the summer and there were moments, word games were involved when it was a vacation for me, but uh, at other times it turned into a family trip. (laughs) There are moments when you leave the young children at home, you know, those are, those are vacations, thoroughly vacations. You're not on a vacation now, but when was the last vacation that you did in fact take? Uh, I suppose uh, I went to Arizona over spring break and sat in the sun, which is very nice when you live in Minnesota. Mm. Sitting in the sun is always a vacation to me. Sitting in the sun with a book, I don't care where it is, what kind of sun is shining, as long as there's a book and something warm involved. Minnesota priorities. (laughs) Where did you go? Uh, We went to a... um, you know, a sort of bougie resort in Arizona, which involved, you know, all sorts of pedicures, massages, lounging about with with a towel on and people tending to you in various luxurious ways. That that was great. You know, it's it's totally unreal. It's, it's a very unreal experience. You think life isn't really like this. Normally, people do not come up and ask me what would you like to drink? Would you like me to, you know, more pressure here or there? That's not um, reality, but God, it's it's terrific. But isn't that what a vacation's supposed to be? Is that is that is that what we define it is? Is by being something that we never would do in real life? I don't know. Our lo- vacations always luxurious. I mean, a lot of travel involves, uh, you know, endeavor, hardship. True. Certainly, when I was younger and traveling on a, a shoestring of a budget. There was sleeping and and train station floors involved, which was great fun, you know, when I was 19. I loved that. But it wasn't luxury. There was nothing luxurious in it. It was just adventure. You know, there was that kind of, I feel like I am 
not all that interested in that kind of travel anymore. The kind that involves bringing your own sleeping sack with you in case there are bugs in the beds. You know, I did that for, for quite some time in my early 20s. It was, it was terrific back then, but I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to sleep with bugs in my beds. Suki's the real world traveler here. She's been to like 27 countries over the last three months. <laughs> I think she should tell us about her vacation. Yeah, vacations. that's amazing. I don't know that those counted as vacations either. Um, now I'm like, oh, there are all these subcategories. Are you going to start like, saying like, oh, the residency I did in Italy wasn't a vacation? <laughs> the, residen- the residency I did in Italy was a residency um, and was fabulous. Oh, um, oh. That's but, a vacation. Um, but yeah, I mean, some of, some of the other trips were work trips. One of them was a family trip, um, which I will admit was not exactly relaxing. Um, I know that there's like a there's like a strong divide I've observed in between people who think of camping as vacation and people who think of camping as like a kind of special punishment. Um, I I may I'm trying to transition myself from the latter category to the former. But I don't come of camp. I'm not of camping. Where did you people. go camping? Was that in Japan, or was that a different trip? Uh, um, where did I go camping? I was in California, and we went on a camping trip at Lake Cuyamaca, which was very pretty. Um, so, and just like, I don't know, in my in my life, I have not been camping that many times, and so I think when I do it, I'm always a little bit like, oh my god, anything could happen. There could be there could there could be wildlife. <laughs> could it's like happen. that scene in. Yeah, that bears. That's raccoons. Yeah, that's seen. That's seen in the Parent Trap when like the the poor stepmother is like, <laughs> you know, the kids are like, there's gonna be a bear, and and she goes around whacking the sticks together to try to scare it off because she's never been on a camping trip before. Like that. That is essentially me. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I have been to yeah this summer. I've been to Italy, Greece, England, Japan, um, California, where there was a hurricane yesterday. So, yeah. So um, we play the, the tiniest violin for you. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. You're, so, so you're, you're subdividing also. There's the working vacation. Yeah. There's the family trip. There's the rugged adventure trip. There are the, all these different, it's not vacation or no vacation. There's, there is a scale. Yeah. I have a different yeah, scale, like, which is vacation is when I am not writing. And then everything else is vacation. So, like, I do think traveling with the kids is vacation. We, we went up to Alaska where I used to work on fishing boats to a town called Ketchikan. Um, and that was great. It was fun. But that definitely, for me, counted as a vacation. Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. So one of the things I noticed about spending a chunk of the summer in Italy was that I wasn't nearly as remote as I would have been even five or six years ago. Um, And, you know, we taped a bunch of podcast episodes while I was in Italy. I remember doing the podcast with you when I was in Germany in 2017, our first fall, but we didn't have Zoom. I didn't see you. My phone didn't work nearly as well. Um, Julie, I'm curious if you could talk a little bit. (laughs) I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about the way the technology has changed the way we conceive of what is or is not a vacation. This appears actually in interesting ways in your novel. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And um, I was one of the last people in the world, I think, to get a cell phone. I just resisted and didn't want one. And so we would, my spouse and I would go on vacation and I would be on vacation. I would be on the beach, happily disconnected. And he would say, hey, so-and-so is trying to reach you. Um, I had actually once written um, a piece in the New York Times about um, a frightening or difficult student. 
And I published it and then merrily went off on vacation. And my spouse said, hey, the provost's office is trying to reach you. They're not happy. And I thought, I'm on vacation. You know, I'll talk to them when I get back. But he insisted that I call people back. And I thought, I should be on vacation. This is not um, part of the rule. But of course, then I had to get a cell phone because the rest of the world had one. And uh, so it does, yeah, it does create a different kind of trip. It's not... It's very hard to disconnect. I guess if you go to Alaska and you're in a tent and you can't get cell service, then that's wonderful. Um, but it's, those things are rare. Um, you can get cell service everywhere now, which is disappointing to me. I kind of yearn still for the days when people had answering machines and you would call them and leave a message and maybe they'd get back to you in a couple of days. You wouldn't sit there staring at your screen saying, why now that nine seconds have elapsed, has this person not called me back? Time was, uh, time and vacation interacted differently back then. Yeah. I'm realizing now, Julie, that you and I once met up when we were on, I I don't know, like, were we on vacation? We were traveling. In in Oxford. We were in Oxford. Um, and we went to a museum and (laughs) one of my favorite museums. (laughs) It was a great museum. And, but like, because when I'm overseas, my, like sometimes, in my, I have sometimes been too cheap to pay for international phone service or just my phone hasn't worked. And I have a terrible sense of direction. So I just get lost without my cell oh, phone. Oh, totally. Um, and that used to feel okay. I don't know, at least if I was in, I don't, you know, if I was in an English speaking country or a country where I spoke the language, could kind of get around. And then when I was in Italy, I was, I downloaded Italian Google Translate so I could use it even when I was offline. And I would do things like go to the post office and, and mail a parcel in Italian with like atrocious pronunciation, no doubt. Um, mm-hmm. Or when we were in Japan, we had a little portable Wi-Fi spot, which was like the first thing we got when we were we got off the plane, grabbed mm. this portable Wi-Fi spot. So I had Wi-Fi, but I didn't have a cell phone, didn't yeah. have phone service. Then someone stole my identity and oh, no. in the middle of the trip, and I couldn't do much about it because I didn't have phone service. And I was like, oh, I wish I had done things the old-fashioned way. Yeah. Um, now, I'm, now I'm attempting to like argue with Experian or whoever um, in this really awkward, awkward manner. So w- when you were in mm-hmm. Ketchikan, what kind of, I know sometimes like in parts of Alaska, like that are r- more remote, like the, when I've been there, sometimes the phone service hasn't been great. Like, do you disconnect or what do you do? Well, I mean, the last time I was there was like probably 1994 or five summer, uh, fishing. So no cell phones, you know, I worked on a boat. We would literally go out to sea, you know, like in, among these islands in the, in, the, in the inside passage. And so you could be out there for a week or two and you, there's no, there's a radio that you could call into shore and ask them to fly your groceries out in a plane. But otherwise, you know, you would actually literally have to come back to shore and mail a letter to someone and then go in and use a phone card and make a, a pay call to someone from the phone, you know, so that you, I was very remote and now not, I mean, there's my cell phone. I can listen to my same, I can listen to the radio station in Kansas city that talks about the chiefs. If I want to, while I'm jogging along the same road that I used to walk up and down totally isolated when I was, you know, in the nineties. So yeah, it's very different. I also remember my wife teaches in Lyon in the summers. uh, And so the first thing we would do when we would go over there is get they have a little map of the whole city, right? And I'd fold that up and put it in my pocket. So when I went jogging, I wouldn't get lost, right? And now I don't need that anymore. And I also noticed in, in, in um, the English experience, I mean, there are scenes where Ficker is like 
talking to his ex-wife while dealing with problems in England. And she's just as present, even though she's in, on another continent, as the people who are around him. You know, and that, that also is part of what technology has changed, what a vacation is, I think. So early in the novel, you have this very funny section that includes the statements of interest from students who are going on this study abroad trip. I've, I've read a few statements of interest in my time, so I was <laughs> amused by this. Uh, one of the students, Lynn Jen Snow, says, Tourism is a consumerist industry that wastes resources, contributes to climate crisis, and reinforces colonialist tropes. You're being tongue-in-cheek here, but this is still a pretty succinct summary of the two ways our thinking about vacations have changed. And, you know, um, So let's start with the politics, right? Do vacations reinforce colonialist tropes, as Lynn Jen Snow is suggesting? I think they can. Um, I think it's tricky. It's very tricky. And um, I've been taking undergrads to Spain the last couple of years. And one of the things, it's a travel writing class that I teach them. We go to Spain in that context. And one of the books that I have assigned to them is Jamaica Kincaid's A Small Place about Antigua and about, you know, the white tourists, European and American coming to Antigua. And it's a very bitter um, portrait of tourism and what it is to be a tourist in a country when you are in fact often ignoring the people who live there all the time, their history, their culture, their language, and just sitting on their beaches and eating their food and <laughs> walking away with the items that are sold in their country. The students, when I've taught that book, are often kind of ticked off about it. They think, hey, you know, this, this instructor is spoiling our fun right off the bat. We want to go have fun. That's what travel is about. It's adventure. It's a good time. We're going to go there. Um, we're able to drink in Spain uh, legally. And here she is trying to make us feel bad. And no, I want to stress the point that it's a real double-edged sword. On the one hand, I really want students, many of them who haven't been out of the U.S. before, to see another culture, to go somewhere and not just read about it, to, to you know, walk around in a city where people are speaking a language they may not speak, and to know what that is. But on the other, yeah, tourism involves you know, climate problems. It involves, um, you know, cultural moments of looking down possibly at other people because you are consuming them rather than vice versa. It's, it's very tricky, I think. I feel like it's pretty predictable of me that like Lynn Jen Snow is basically one of my favorite characters in your book. <laughs> Good. <laughs> the, the second she showed up, I was like, yes, her. Um, so yeah, I was thinking about um, maybe back in 2010, the New York Times put um, Sri Lanka at the top of its list of places to visit in the world. This was right after the Sri Lankan Civil War had ended. Yeah. And there was like a lot of kind of disgusting. War's over. Let's go. Hit the beach. Basically, they were like, oh, and now we can go to the beach. The beach is unspoiled. I was like, excellent. Now I'm going to become a critic of travel writing. So I wrote a yeah. bunch of like very ranty things about this mm -hmm. and then got into some discussions, even with Sri Lankans who were kind of like, so you don't, don't criticize this. We need the, we need the income. We I need know. The, we need the business. We need the tourism. Well, that's that even is, happening now with Maui, you know, um, right. do, they still need the tourist dollars I mean, money is going to be desperately needed there. But on the other hand, there's something very crass about People still checking into a hotel to hang out on the beach where all these people died, you know, or near nearby. 
Well, and I think like some of those people who are there are probably about to be trying to unethically acquire that land. So you you can kind of see in the same way that in Sri Lanka kind of post tsunami, you could see people who had lost their homes closer to shore. Um, Mm. You know, sometimes their developers or or what have you like trying to trying to prey on those folks. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. But sort of rewinding a second, to, we were talking about the climate crisis, and I have to admit that this is the this is one of the parts that has really been getting to me lately. This is yes, the part of the part of the podcast episode <laughs> where I have a quiet panic attack. Um, I did fly all over the world uh, this summer, and I was aware that I was leaving behind a huge carbon footprint. I was obviously not alone in doing that. The airports were full. Um, you know, the airlines are understaffed. Um, there are all sorts of the, the planes themselves are dealing with like different weather than they used to. Um, and now seeing the climate devastation in places like Florida and Maui and Alaska, which are all huge tourist sites. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if maybe the reason so many people travel this year is that they're afraid that this kind of travel is coming to an end. Yeah, you read about, you know, the glaciers are melting. Let's go to Alaska and see them before they're totally gone. Um, You know, the (laughs) countries are going to disappear in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Let's go there. Let's hit that island before it's underwater. It's, again, it's it's a real conundrum, I think. You want to be able to support an economy that relies on tourism, but you have to do so with your eyes open and know the pros and cons of everything you're doing. Um, you know, there, there are all those programs with the airline, you know, I'm going to pay extra and Delta will plant nine trees once I, <clears throat> I get on that flight. But I don't think they're really doing a whole lot other than making travelers not feel bad. I always traveling. just assume those are complete and utter bullshit. And there's Maybe they're not planting no those trees at all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what they should actually be doing is handing out a small place to every passenger. Is the That's true. Thing. That's true. <laughs> the special Delta edition. Yeah. She, she would love Delta that. Delta edition love that. of a small place. Okay, we're going to take a short break here, and we'll be right back. And it definitely affected the vacation that we... The reason... I have a complicated story here, but like we used to, when I was very, my grandfather bought a, a like a small little bungalow in the Cayman Islands in like the mid sixties mm. before I was born, right? Before you could even fly to that island, he, they took a, like a boat from Florida and sort of held onto that property my entire life. And we went down there a lot and we had long relationships with families that lived there, but we're still tourists, right? Going down and, and, and can, you know, using the beaches, right? Um, sure. And we sold the property uh, because I don't think that that because of climate, like, yeah. I don't think it's a good place to own property. But the Caymanians don't have that choice. Right. That's you know, I feel like I, we just could walk right out of there. That's the difference between somebody who's a who's a tourist and, and, and own, owning property as a vacationer. Right. And somebody yeah. who lives in a place. Well, yeah. We also went to Alaska because I was hoping to show the children like a place of nature that wasn't under threat, that wasn't like kids should get to see some good things occasionally and don't have to be told, well, this will be over any minute now. You know, like that's not really no. a great way to grow up. And yet no. after we went up there, I mean, Ketchikan's not far from Juneau and they showed all the flooding around the the glacier there. I visited that glacier on the on the fishing boat that we used to work on. And so it wasn't free from clim- climate thought, you know? Yeah, yeah. And it was sad. Yeah. As I said. Um, okay. The vacation, the study abroad trip, the ocean cruise, these periods of rest and travel have a long history in fiction and nonfiction. Julie, in your preparation for writing The English Experience, did you look back on any of your favorite narratives about travel? 
And if so, what are they? I don't know that I, I looked back on uh, favorite narratives, um, but I do have a few of them. There's a couple of books by um, Elaine de Botton, whose name I may be mispronouncing. Uh, one is called A Week at the Airport, and he's hired by um, somebody at Heathrow when they build a new wing. This is maybe 20 years ago or so. And he just becomes a tourist in that wing. He never gets on an airplane. He interviews um, flight attendants who are walking by on the way to their job. He interviews people who work at the uh, food kiosks, people who were sweeping the floors, people who were on their way to one spot or another. He sleeps in a hotel adjacent to the airport and he spends a week there and I think He's trying to think in interesting ways about tourism and travel and vacations. Um, another one of his books, which I have assigned to my undergrads in the travel writing class, is called The Art of Travel. And it's, it's various um, essays tying writers and artists to particular countries that they traveled in or um, like to write about. There's a uh, some guy, I can't remember, I don't have the book with me, and I can't remember who this uh, writer was from a hundred or so years ago. De Botton writes about him that he, he wrote a travel piece about his own bedroom, <laughs> looking, you know, starting <laughs> with the dresser. And it was a long piece, you know, beginning, he stayed in his pajamas for days and just wrote about the room in which he was currently sitting. And I think, God, that's just so interesting you know what is travel anyway you know you can you can look at Cheryl Strayed hiking the Pacific Crest Trail or you know there's these of course the travel narratives of going back to the conquistadors Genghis Khan um, people who were conquering spots and that was their reason for travel or you know the the Paul Thoreau Patagonia Express those sorts of books usually written by men Usually, you know, they, they weren't conquering anywhere, but they, there was a sense of conquer or conquest in, in their prose. I mean, the Odyssey is um, a travel narrative. Sure, sure. Yeah, so it, it depends on how you define travel. Can travel consist of sitting in your bedroom and writing about the bed, the dresser, the mirror, the window? Um, I don't know. Travel can be going to a museum you've never been to before. And what does it what does it look like? What does it do to you? That's such a that's such a good prompt. And uh, yeah, any future students listening to this, the odds that you're going to get assigned that is very faced. A new assignment. But yeah, I, I mean, thinking about the kind of masculine history of travel narratives, I was when I was thinking about this question, I realized that two of my Two of my defining travel narratives, um, of course, come from when I was little and reading. And I think I'm, I think I'm now about to hit a personal podcast goal in managing to mention the Babysitters Club on this show. Because <laughs> when I was little, and would read the Babysitters Club. They would have these super special editions where all of the babysitters and all of their families would go on vacation together. And he's like, <laughs> sounds mm-hmm. awful. <laughs> it was. I mean, it sounded completely awful. Unless you were a kid reading the book who never got to go on such a vacation with all of your babysitter friends and their <laughs> their siblings and their parents and you would go on like a cruise to Disney World and I was like how outlandish what a dream like I would never I would never do this and right and, and the books themselves were even like just physically different than the rest of the books sure. to sort of mark the specialness of vacation and blah 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 or like they would go to camp and like I didn't really go to sleepaway camp unless it was some sort of scholarly camp like 
where you took a course. Um, and, and then the other one that I thought of, which perhaps has slightly more dignity, um, to be fair, I really like the Babysitter's Club, but the other one was Little Women, um, oh, where, you yeah. know, Amy and Joe have this like classic, right, the standoff where Aunt March is like, one of you gets to go to Europe. One of you. The one who has behaved better gets to go to Europe. But then there's also this kind of like, um, right, then the notion of like the American in Europe going on the grand tour and like yep. absorb, absorbing culture, becoming an adult, becoming yep. like debuting sort of in some in some specific way that has yeah. to do with that a, kind a of A young travel. woman being finished by going to the continent. Yeah. Exactly. Like and, Henry James. Um, sure. Yeah. Yeah. And so like there is this really interesting like in, in – college I took a class that was kind of it was about Americans abroad and so we read all these read all these narratives um but I think that Little Women really was still kind of mm-hmm. the first the first whiff of that that I got and I was kind of like oh I, yeah, I that's like interesting to, I would like to be finished on the continent and then now now I'm more like I'm more like <laughs> you must Jensen. be now you were on the continent this summer <laughs> yeah but now now I stomp around the continent like Lin Jen Snow looking in the British Museum and seeing everything they stole yeah everything they stole yeah um but so as this conversation shows, I can think of a lot more novels and nonfiction books that are centered on travel than I can think of books that focus on what people actually do in their normal lives. Is that the whole attraction? What is it that makes vacation such productive territory for fiction, even when it's, I don't know, the provost claiming it's a vacation <laughs> and sending you I mean, it, Well, you know, I've written a bunch of uh, novels for kids and young adults, and there's such a common trope in those novels where you take it they're they're either set in the summer when the kid is out of school the child character is out of school because that's when adventure and things that are atypical happen right you know you're not in school you're not doing your monday to friday routine and then your piano lesson and then whatever else there's a sort of freedom right when summer hits and you're 12 years old maybe you go to camp maybe you sit around hoping to watch tv all day but there's a freedom and a sense of exploration associated with that break in the routine and there's a there's a novel that uh i love beginnings of novels and there's one by uh josephine humphreys called rich in love which i read years ago and the opening sentence i'm gonna read it's terrific um On an afternoon two years ago, my life veered from its day-in, day-out course and became for a short while the kind of life that can be told as a story, that is, one in which events appear to have meaning. I always loved that. And um, I feel like that's, you know, the way in which a story often begins is I'm out of my day-to-day life in a different series of events that seem to have some sort of meaning beyond what I was ordinarily doing, what I was ordinarily thinking about. Um, and I don't know, that to me is the reason for it. You take the character out of their usual realm and put them somewhere else. Maybe they're less comfortable there, things are less familiar. So something is more likely to happen, right? When you're not just going to work, going to school, whatever it is you might be usually up to. It also makes self-reflection more likely or plausible because I feel like people are self-reflective on vacation. I'm immediately yeah. like, oh, I haven't written in my journal in five years. Let's write a passage about what's <laughs> yeah. been going on. Yeah. You know? <laughs> That's the only time I keep a journal, too. I always tell my students, you must be keeping a journal. Journals are very important, but I don't do it myself. But if I travel, I suddenly think, oh, yeah, I guess I could jot down where I went and what I thought. And it does lead to reflection. Another thing that makes vacations its prime territory for fiction, and particularly, I think, American fiction, 
is that Americans are really bad at it. <laughs> we have an entire movie series. All the National Lampoon Vacation movies are based on this premise. Um, we're a big country. We don't. It's hard to go to other countries. Like Europeans yeah. are, you know, just walk across the street and then suddenly you're, yeah. you know, in Switzerland. Um, and when we do, we're a disaster at it. We can't find our passports. We don't speak languages. You know, this concept plays a very important role in your novel. I wondered if you could talk to us about the unique ineptitude of Americans when it comes to travel, particularly international travel, and read a section of your book. I think that's true, particularly for the Midwest, because, you know, our states are big in the Midwest. I grew up in Delaware, and, you know, we could be in Philadelphia in five minutes over the state line. We could be in Maryland in 15 minutes. You can, you can be almost anywhere from Delaware very quickly because it's so small. And that maybe that's a sort of equivalency with Europe, except Europe is much more interesting than Delaware. Um, but yeah, I would be happy to read a portion of um, of this. There's a whole bunch of characters, as you mentioned earlier. Uh, there are statements of interest and little sections written by Jason Ficker's undergraduate students. He does send them early on on a trip to the British Museum and he instructs them they should find something there that is interesting to them and then write 500 words about it. So this and he's is the one professor of the... who's leading the study yes. abroad trip of these students yes. in, in England. Okay. Yep. Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. So this one is uh, written by a student named Zanna Blythe and she titles it Vomiting in the British Museum, an Experience. You are in a stall in the women's bathroom in the British Museum with a spot of vomit on your shoe when your mom sends a text. Hi, honey. Doing okay so far? Everything good? You are not finished vomiting because here is that pressing up feeling under your jaw, your mouth refilling itself like a well full of spit. But you text her okay because she already texts you a lot and she will definitely up her game if she's worried. When it comes to worrying, she is a specialist. Your first day in London, she says. Yep. You breathe in and out and stare into the hole in the center of the toilet. You vomit and flush. What's on your schedule today, your mom asks. You leave the stall and wash your hands at the sink and text her back to tell her you're in the British Museum. Like most museums, this one will culminate in a gift shop. What should you bring her, a souvenir? You know I don't need any gifts, she says. Just you safe and sound. She wants to know if the other kids on the trip are nice. You send her a neutral maybe face. One step at a time, she says, that's the way to make friends, no overthinking. You send her an emoji of a tornado next to a brain. She says, ha, 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 and sends you a heart. You send her a piece of a picture of a piece of broccoli just to be random. The bathroom door opens and two of the girls from the trip are studying your whitewashed face in the mirror. One of them says that maybe you are sleep deprived due to jet lag, or maybe you ate one of those weird looking eggs at breakfast, or maybe you're pregnant. Ha ha, you're not pregnant. The second girl tells you about the museum's Egyptian mummies, which she says are like moldy sleeping beauties in coffins. Nice metaphor, you tell her. You go back to the stall and throw up. Your mom texts again. She tells you she is glad you're having an adventure in England, but she hopes you'll remember what the campus therapist said about taking care of yourself. You shouldn't overextend. She tells you that sometimes you don't know when to stop. You text her a picture of a stop sign. 
She texts you another heart and then a unicorn with a bunch of balloons. The two girls from your trip announce through the door of your stall that most of the group is getting ready to leave the museum. The lovey-dovey couple is planning to go to Madame Tussaud's. Do you want to go with them? No. You make a bet with yourself. One of them will be hooking up with someone else in your group before the trip is done. You tell the girls you'll be out in a minute. You text your mom and tell her you're sorry for being such a problem child. She texts you back to tell you she loves you, and she sends you a picture of a bee and a knee. This is her shorthand. You are the bee's knees. You take a deep breath and come out of the stall to find one of the guys from the trip, the one who was wearing shorts because he apparently thought England was in the Caribbean, leaning against the paper towel dispenser. His legs are furry with hair, and he doesn't seem to care that he is a guy in a women's restroom. He offers you some chalky pink pills. He has a plastic bag full of pills in his cargo shorts pocket. Back home, he is probably a dealer, and you can tell by the slow way he's blinking that he's probably high. You take one of the flat pink discs and chew it slowly. When you leave the bathroom, a wad of damp paper towels in hand, the girl who is obsessed with her cat says she's sorry you're sick, and she wants to know what you'll do about your first essay. How will you write it if you weren't able to see the museum? You tell her you're going to write about throwing up, and you'll call your essay Vomiting in the British Museum. She probably thinks you aren't serious, but of course you are. Thank you so much. One of the most accurate, precise descriptions of vomiting I've ever read. Uh, <laughs> I don't also, think I've ever read of me. anyone texting while vomiting. That was a new one for me. <laughs> <laughs> but also just, yeah, the, the ventriloquism of the, I mean, these, this, the voices of the students are so, they are, they are on, man. They're, they're, I feel like reading this book, I'm like, I've had that <laughs> I know about these people. <laughs> um, but I feel like that passage in particular distills a lot of the things we were talking about earlier. For instance, the, te- the technology, you know, poor Zana can't escape her mom even when she's across the Atlantic. And, and she manages to be overbearing even when she's just using emojis. <laughs> I know that there are so many uh, students when I take them on the trip to Spain who are all connected. I tell them, you know, this will be actually a good time to turn the cell phone off. Let's have even think about leaving them behind and take a walk. Um, but it's very hard for them. It's like asking them to, to take their arm off and, and put it <laughs> aside somewhere. They, they just, it's, it's part of them. It's so essential to them. And it's, it's also- I think, uh, when I traveled abroad as, a, as an undergrad, I'd spend some time in South America, and I was instructed to write home once a week, and once a month, I would go into, um, it was like a little um, phone booth that you, you paid someone, you gave them money, and then they would connect the call for you, and you would go into the little booth and pick up the phone, and they would say, your call is ready, and you would pay ahead of time for three minutes, and... We had to arrange, of course, that I would call, you know, every fourth Sunday at 8 a.m. or whatever it was from this little booth. And other than that, we were not in touch. You know, they didn't know where I was. And uh, it didn't occur to me that that was something to worry about. Maybe they worried, <laughs> but it didn't occur to me when I was a student that there was any reason for that. I was just wandering about South America. Oh, my God. I'm just thinking about how that was true of when I traveled, but how terrified I would be if my kids did that now. As a parent. I didn't like I know. that. I know. 
Yeah, uh, I got a phone call once from my daughter who was in um, Mongolia. You know, the, the 3 a.m. wake up call saying, I'm in a hospital in Ulaanbaatar. I think the rest of the group has left me. <laughs> I'm thinking, what time is it? Where, who am I? What, what, am I, what is happening? Um, yeah, you don't like those kind of calls, but um, all was well in the end. And, uh, I mean, I but in the old days, that would not have been a possible phone call. That's uh, I, the other thing I was, I'm thinking of other things. I, I, before I get sidetracked about worrying about my kids doing things they haven't done yet, I'm going to ask you, the other thing about that passage is this sort of myopia of Americans, right? Like the mother is not at all interested in what is in the British Museum or considering it as a possible educational experience. Like the only thing that, and the only thing that the, the girl thinks about also is the gift shop. Like that there's a kind of like, we're just get, eliding this entire thing. And what it yeah, means yeah. for emojis yeah. and bees knees. Yeah, yeah. What what is what is the museum? What's it going to contain? What are the politics of the museum? There is the one student that Sugi likes who is uh, appalled at some of the pillaging that has gone on <laughs> to stuff the British Museum full of things. But um, most of them are not. They are not thinking of that. They're thinking about the gift shop or how about let's ditch this place and go to Madame Tussauds. So. So not to get you another call from the provost, uh, but you've mentioned that you've taken these students on these travel abroad uh, experiences yourself to Spain, not England. Uh, but did some of these things happen to you? Do we? Are we? Can you draw? I, I on tried your not to. Here? I tried not to use any real life things. Um, you know, there were moments in Spain when um, I asked everybody first thing. For example, let's. Find a buddy. Everybody's tired, jet lag, but let's find a buddy and everybody walk around. I give you two hours, find something to eat and then come back and we'll talk about our first impressions. And um, almost all of them went to McDonald's. That <laughs> didn't occur to me. I thought find something to eat would mean <laughs> going and eating some Spanish food. But, you know, they were nervous. They were nervous. Uh, let's do something that is familiar to us. It took them a while to pull themselves away from that. Starbucks, McDonald's, um, you know, that's what they wanted to do at first. And I, I said, you know, maybe you won't like something that you order here. That will be okay. <laughs> we should still order something that we may not know what it is. That's going to be part of our experience. Professor Fitker says at one point about one of their guides who speaks six languages, and he says, well, she would be she would be like a genius or a, or a diplomat in America. And here she's just a, a half pay, you know, tour guide, you know, because Europeans are familiar with being in spaces where people speak other languages and Americans just are not. Yeah, 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 totally. Um, that was another um, instance from the original trip I took to Spain with undergraduates was um, one student told me, well, I can't believe everybody here is speaking Spanish. And I said, it is Spain. <laughs> we are in, in Spain. But well, I knew that, you know, lots of people would, but I thought more of them would speak English. And I thought probably a good number of them do, but we are in their country. <laughs> they are speaking their language. You know, again, that sort of, and the student, you know, agreed and said, oh yes, of course, of course. But it's difficult to get Americans who have never been away from home out of that mindset, which is, back to what makes travel important. It's important for a 19 year old to go out of their usual orbit 
and understand that they are not the center of the world. You know, I think that's a really crucial thing for a young person to experience. But in doing so, we are often contributing to problems that persist. And this seems to me like also one of the reasons, right, that fiction is so narratively productive is that you have to have a plan. And then at least if it's a if it's a story, like if it's a movie, right, this is a screenwriting rule that I, I guess I learned from one of my former students who had been also trained as a screenwriter, that you only see a plan on screen if the plan will later go awry. Um, <laughs> and if it's going to go according to plan, then you just see it unfold. Sure. And like, like the great thing about a trip right here, we're like, oh, J- like Jason Fitker is taking 11 students on a three week trip to England. What could go wrong? What could go wrong? <laughs> and, um, and of course, you know, like that's the, that's the joy of reading the book to, to find out like all of the ways that things take detours. Um, so if you want to see the way that Jason Fitker once again, <laughs> goes just a, just a little, his plans go just a little bit awry. Listeners don't forget to pick up a copy of the English experience, which is, out now. And Julie, thank you so much for joining us. It's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks. Thanks so much. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Ann Knigendorf. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. Please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done it yet. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com where the Fiction Nonfiction podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. We'll also post that show page with links to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. You can find video of our interviews at our own Fiction Nonfiction podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel and on our website at fnfpodcast.net, where our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. Happy reading.